Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin Carboneau. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I use his article, You Can't Time the Market, But Many People Should, to discuss the idea of trend following, its pluses and minuses, costs and benefits, and the various things investors should consider when implementing or following a trend following approach. I hope you enjoy the discussion. So, I mean, maybe to start, let's just talk about, and this is what you you actually highlighted this in your article. Um, Market timing requires two decisions, right? The decision to get in and the decision to get out. So maybe let's start there as a baseline. Yeah, you know, I think a good place to start is that there's so many experts that try to time the market, but it's important to understand that everything that is publicly known for the most part is in market prices already. And so for me to be able to time the market, I have to take those expectations that are embedded in market prices and I have to be able to have a divergent opinion and I have to also be correct. And, and, and like you said, when I decide that the market is overvalued, I have to be able to get out at a reasonable time relative to when it actually starts going down. And then I also have to be able to get back in at a reasonable time relative to when it starts going up. So if, if you look at 2008, you know, I had to be somewhere in the vicinity of where the market, you know, of where the market started going down. I couldn't get out in December after most of it was already, most of the decline had already happened. And I also had to be back in somewhere near March. Um, I couldn't be back in, in, you know, November of the next year or my market, even if I got one of the decisions right, the other decision would offset it. So like you said, you have to get two things right to time the market. And in general, that is almost impossible to do, which is why you see almost anybody who attempts to time the market fail. Right. That's a good point. You know, usually most people are making these decisions after most of the decline happens. I mean, bear markets tend to be pretty consolidated or cons- they're much shorter than bull markets. So usually in bear markets, you know, the vast majority of the, de- the declines come pretty quickly in a pretty short period of time. And then people make the decision, let's say, to reduce their equity exposure and they're doing it at the exact wrong time. But I also think that relates to the chart you had in your article, which showed the peak to trough declines in these major bear markets. So since 1930, there's been approximately 20 bear markets in the U.S. equity market, and um, that means they come around once every five years or so. The declines range anywhere from a worst case scenario, which was down like 80% in the Great Depression, to down like 20%, which is a shallow bear market. But the point I think you were making in that article was it's during those declines that people get most emotional and people tend to make the biggest mistakes when trying to time the market. Right. So if you're going to have any sort of strategy that rotates in and out of the market, you know, I think the best thing to do is to have it be systematic. Because like you said, 
when these declines are happening, you're not thinking straight. Even the experts, even the best people are not thinking straight. They're thinking the world is coming to an end. They're thinking we have major, major problems that we're not going to recover from. So trying to make those decisions under that level of emotion is almost impossible. And, and we'll talk about trend following later, but that's why I think if, if anybody is going to attempt to make decisions to get out of the market at a certain time and get back in the market at a certain time, I think it's really important that that decision be a systematic one to limit those emotions. Mm -hmm. Okay. So um, obviously where we are today, so it's February um, 2020, the market's at all-time high, Dow's almost at 30,000. Um, and, you know, based on most valuation metrics on the overall market, whether you're talking the Schiller PE, Tobin's Q, stock market to GDP, um, which is Buff uh, an indicator that Buffett supposedly likes. I mean, the market looks and has looked for a couple of years now pretty expensive. And I think one of the points you made in the article was, you know, making market timing calls based on valuation is very difficult. Yeah, you know, valuation can be helpful from one perspective. Valuation is helpful in predicting 10-year-plus returns. So if I want to say, what are my returns going to be over the next decade plus, I can look at the valuation now, and when that valuation is higher, my long-term returns are likely going to be lower. When that valuation is lower, my long-term returns are likely going to be higher. But what valuation is terrible at is trying to predict any sort of turning point or trying to predict returns over one years or three years or anything like that. Valuation is terrible at that. So one of the last things you want to use to attempt to time the market in any way is valuation. Because as you pointed out, the market's valuation has been elevated during this bull market for a long, long time. And if you look at periods like the late 90s, it was much worse than it is now and, and elevated for a long period of time. So you can just never get those turning points with valuation. You can use valuation as a guide to try to tell you what to expect in terms of long-term returns, but you can't time turns with valuation. Yeah. And the other thing that you talked about in the article is you, it's also very tough to use the market's past performance. And you highlighted a chart. I think Ben Carlson from Ritholtz had it um, in one of his articles. And he was talking about the performance of the stock market in the following year after all of the what. And he gave different examples of what happened in the previous year. And basically what it showed is that, you know, there's no probability. There's nothing. There's really nothing that can happen in the previous year that will give you any good indication of what's going to happen in the following year. It's really just right around, you know, the probability is the same across all these different scenarios. That's right. And, you know, Med Faber's had some work recently on this where he, where he talked about investing at all-time highs. And, you know, most people would think investing at all-time highs is a terrible idea. But if you look at it, investing at all-time highs actually generates a better return than investing on a random, you know, on, on any other random period. So trying to use what's gone on recently and saying, well, we're up a lot, so, you know, I, sh I should be out of the market that type of thing doesn't work. Um, you know, just like valuation, previous returns of the market is also not a very good way to decide whether I want to be in or out of the market. Right. So that kind of leads us into this concept of trend following. So maybe to start, um, do you want to just talk about what trend following is? And then we can talk a little bit about, speaking of Med Faber, and Med, Med wrote that paper, a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation. We'll kind of talk about some of the statistics in there, but maybe to start, let's talk about trend following. What actually, you know, there's a lot of different ways to do trend following, but at a high level, what's the most common way? 
Yeah, so, so trend following is just a way to try to limit your exposure to major drawdowns in the market. And so when the market breaks down from a technical standpoint, you want, you'll raise cash in a trend following or hedge in some way in a trend following strategy. And, and the most common way it's done is to compare the current price of the market to an average price over a previous period. And the 200-day moving average is probably the most common. So if I say the price today, if the price today falls below the average price over the previous 200 trading days, and I'm using a 200-day strategy, I would hedge or go to cash or do whatever I'm going to do. And then when it breaks back above the 200-day moving average, I would get back in. And so this, has, this strategy has an advantage of it doesn't look at things like valuation or it looks at what's actually happening. And so when the market is actually going down and the trend actually is negative, that's when you get out. And so you never get out at the top. You never, you likely don't get out near the top. But what you do do is that that left tail of returns, those negative returns that can happen in, in severe bear markets, you tend to be able to limit those with a ten, uh, with a trend following approach. Yeah, and so, I think. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think, and, and the way this the strategy oftentimes is like deployed. Like a lot of people use, like if the market closes below the 200-day, like on a monthly or maybe over two months consecutively, that's the signal. It's not necessarily on a daily basis because the market can be you know, fluctuating day in and day out. If it's bumping right along the 200-day, it doesn't mean that it's like buying one day, selling another day, buying one day, selling another day. So sometimes there's like a smoothing effect or they you know, look at like if the market closes below the 200-day on a monthly basis or some um, signal like that. Yeah, you know, one of the interesting things is, and this goes back to, we've talked about Corey Hostein on the podcast before. One of the interesting things he's shown with this is you want to use as many factors in this as possible. So you don't want to just use the 200-day moving average. You don't want to just do it at the end of the month. In general, you want to try to blend all this stuff together. And so you get the general trend established and you don't tie yourself to one particular day or one particular indicator. Because, and we saw this, I believe it was the beginning of uh, 2016, Sometimes these month-end days can be the exact wrong day. And so the trend will break negative at the end of the month, and then it breaks right back positive, and you can't mm. – and people who are following the month-end strategies, it takes them a month to get back in, and it really destroys like a year worth of returns. And so the goal is to try to get the general trend, but the best way to do that is typically to blend a bunch of different indicators and to use a bunch of different periods to do it. Right. That's that's a good point. Um, in Meb's paper, which was a white paper he published, and we'll put this in the show notes, a quantitative approach to tactical asset allocation, he basically tested this 200-day moving average strategy versus buy and hold. And I think it was from 1901 to 2000. Originally, this paper was published in 07, but there's an updated version um, uh, through 2012, I think. And what he showed and what you uh, put in your article was the returns are, I mean, timing is a little bit better. The S&P returned 9.3% over that period of time annually versus the timing approach of 10.1%. So it is almost a percentage point better, which is kind of significant over that period of time. But the big, um, the big benefit of a strategy like this was the volatility and the maximum drawdown were significantly less with timing. And so I think the point there is, is that Going back to how emotional investors can get during down markets, a trend-following approach or technique like this that can substantially reduce volatility could be beneficial, potentially, for those types of investors. 
Right. As we talked about before, you know, when emotions are at an absolute high during these bear markets, this is going to give you a, a hard and fast rule as to when to, you know, when to raise cash or hedge or whatever you're going to do. And, and that's really important because it's taking the decision out of your hands. And it's also limiting drawdowns, which is really important, too, because people tend to panic during drawdowns. People tend to bail out at bottoms during drawdowns. And so if, if you have a rule that's telling you what to do versus you trying to use your emotions to decide what to do, it's, it's a much better system if you're going to do this type of thing. In a previous podcast, we talked about backtesting, and when you see results that are backtested, you want to look and you want to understand when a strategy may have struggled or when it may not have worked. And so, like all strategies, um, trend following also has drawbacks, um, I think, that are important to discuss. Um, one of them is obviously these things, these models, anything with trend can get faked out and whipsawed. Um, so do you want to sort of just talk about that a little bit, how that, you know, a trend following system may get it wrong more than it gets it right and, and what an investor has to deal with and how they should react to that? Yeah. So in, in general, a trend following system, at least the ones we've looked at, will tend to be wrong more than they're right when they say to get out of the market. The reasons they generate comparable, if not maybe a little better, depending on how you look at it, returns is because when they are right, they can be right in a really, really big way. And so if you look at 2008, many trend systems were out in September or were out earlier in the year, long before the decline happened. So trend systems saved people, you know, upwards of a 40% decline. And so that can make up for a lot of false signals along the way. And by the way, talking about the weaknesses of this, that's what we've seen since then. We've seen nothing but pretty much false signals since 2008. We've seen a lot of periods where trend has been invested, but we've also seen a lot of periods where trend has gotten whipsawed in and out. Mm. And that is the major drawback of trend following is, you know, Jim O'Shaughnessy often talks about multiple points of failure. You know, one point of failure is you're going to panic when the market's down. The other point is you're going to panic when, when you're underperforming. And this sort of trades one for the other in some ways, because we're trying to limit the drawdowns when, when the market's down, but we're going to have periods that we look really different than the market. And, and that's what you've seen since 2008. We've had periods where the market just continued going up, but trend pulled you out for a month or two or something like that. And, and that, you know, that brought down your return. And, and that's really hard as an investor to see all your friends and everybody you're looking at continuing to go up and continuing to do well. And you're struggling because you're sitting here in cash. And, and that's the downside of trend following. And that what makes, that's what makes it not right for everybody. It can be a hard thing to endure those periods where you're looking different and the market's going up and you're not. Right. Um, two things. One, you know, if you think back to December, so in the fall of 2018, the Fed was, you know, potentially starting to move. And then there was fears of, you know, slower growth and the China trade thing. Stocks basically fell. I mean, the S&P essentially fell from September through late December, 20 percent. And then on December 24th, the market turned on a dime. Um, and in January, you know, the S&P was up, I think, like t close to 10 percent, roughly. So trend following, many trend following systems were actually starting to reduce equity exposure sort of late in the fall and into December. And then, you know, when the market turned, a lot of these trend following systems had to chase the market in. So that's the type of risk we're talking about. And that's the type of example where a trend following system, I think, is going to is going to struggle. And that's um, also one of the benefits of using the multiple metrics again, because you've seen a bunch of examples where one particular metric, whether it be the 200 day moving average or something else, got it exactly wrong. And so if, you, if you're using multiple metrics, you're still probably going to struggle relative to buy and hold because you're going to be raising cash to some extent.
but you're not going to be making this binary choice where I go all right. the way out and then the market keeps going up. So th that's one of the reasons the multiple metrics can really be beneficial. Yeah, for sure. The other thing I was going to mention is, you know, we do run sort of this trend falling overlay on a number of different asset classes and uh, models that we run to track the performance of those with trend following versus buy and hold. And something like commodities, which commodities have basically been a train wreck for like the last, you know, 12 years or whatever since the great financial crisis. It's, in, it's interesting with that because, you know, in an asset class that is really in a long-term, really bad downtrend, but has had periods where you get these bursts, at least with, with the, the trend following system that, that we track, you know, it's actually helped quite a bit with commodities and some of these other asset classes that have really struggled. You've actually tended to see much better results um, versus, versus buy and hold. So I just think that's interesting with some asset classes. Yeah, and even when you look at the long term, you know, one of the things about trend is that it has been robust. It, it has worked across various asset classes. You know, no matter what you apply trend to, it tends to show positive results over time. Um, it, it may not outperform the buy and hold approach, but at the very least, it's, it's producing a comparable return and doing so with less drawdowns and less volatility. Great. So, I mean, I think that's a good summary of sort of the, the you know, what you want to I guess be careful about with market timing, but also if you are going to market time, you know, maybe trend following is a way that some investors might be able to do it. To your point, you, you don't want to use just one signal. Uh, a series of signals can be useful. Um, but like anything in the market, there's pluses and minuses, there's failure points, there's risks. And so I think, you know, you just got to be careful about that and you got to find the strategy or the, or the set of strategies that helps you avoid those emotional mistakes when the times get tough. Yeah, you know, there's a tendency to think trend following is this holy grail of investing when people see it because they see the they see something that manages these large bear markets and these large drawdowns, and and they think that's something for everybody. But the truth is, everything in investing has positives, and everything in investing has negatives. And and in the case of trend following, one of the positives is you'll limit these large drawdowns, but the negative is you're going to have periods where the market's going up and you're going to be sitting in cash. And that can be really hard for people to do. And so going back to O'Shaughnessy's multiple points of failure, if your biggest point of failure is drawdowns, then trend following might be great for you. If your biggest point of failure is I can't underperform the market or I panic, then it's probably a terrible thing for you. So it really, as with many things, the, it really is each individual investor what's best for them. Great. That's a great... Um way to conclude this discussion, I think. So thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, we hope to see you next time. Thank you. Hi, guys. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at PracticalQuant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJCarboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.